Would you bow and pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, Easter morning, your son is indeed uh, crowned in glory above all glory. This is the day we celebrate, Father, him rising from the dead. This is the day we celebrate new life that he gives. This is the day we celebrate new life that might even begin today in this room, Father. We, we can never worship you enough. Uh, I will pray that again. We can never worship you enough. On, on this day, Father, I'm praying that your spirit would give me only your words. And your spirit would give me your heart for those words. And I'm praying for everyone here that your spirit would, uh, would find an open heart and an open mind so that you might speak into and touch and move and stir. I'm praying that for all of us today, Father, that we would be open to you, receptive to you on this day, this really, truly glory-filled day of resurrection. And this day, in this hour, none of us would leave quite the same as which we came. I pray this with high expectation. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. I had been at rehearsal that the band had done earlier this morning. They'd done a lot of work on Thursday. They did more work this morning. And so I got to sit in here, and, and the opening song, when the curtain dropped, I got to experience that during rehearsal. And I was glad because it was a, it was a powerful experience. And I thought, okay, I've gotten over that now. Now when we have first service at 8 o'clock, I'll be good, and I can hold my composure. And so we get to that point, and I'm all, I'm cued for it, I think. And, and the curtain falls, and they're illuminated so brightly. And for an instant... I thought I was looking into heaven this Easter morning, and I thought I had a glimpse of those that have gone before us that are in heaven today, and I thought about my mother and father that are there today, I thought about Marie's dad, I thought about a dear friend who, who entered heaven just this week, and I was deeply stirred with the reality is this is Easter in heaven as well, and don't you know heaven is full of worshipers, worshiping Jesus the risen son, and then quickly my thoughts uh, began to spin, and I thought it's just not a picture of heaven, but but we're not the only church in the Bay Area worshiping a risen Jesus today. There are tons of churches all across the Bay Area. And then far beyond that, I thought, they tell us that around the planet there are 2 billion people that follow Jesus, worshiping the risen Jesus today. And I thought, we're a part of that. We're a part of that today. I am so glad you're here today. So glad you're here. We have a room full here. We have, I understand, a room full in our overflow as well. And, and those of you in overflow, we, we welcome you into this room as well. Um, many of you are guests, and I'm especially glad that you're here. And I want to bring us up to speed, put us on the same page. For the last three months at FCC, we've been pondering the question, where is God today? Where is God today? And we've all asked that at one time or another, usually in hard times. And it may be difficult times around the planet, like we've had this very week with the tragedies in Brussels, and maybe we find ourselves asking, where is God today? And maybe even more so, it's in our own personal struggles and difficulties. Maybe it's in the loss of a job. Where are you today, God? The f loss of uh, finances. Uh, maybe it's a relationship that is crumbling quickly. Maybe it's in a sense of, of purposelessness uh, on and on and on. Where is God today? So we've used two biblical truths to guide us to find the answer to that question over the last three months. One is found in Colossians 1.15. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, if we want to see God, 
we can look at Jesus and we see God precisely. We see the exact likeness of God. If we want to know where God is, we look at where Jesus is and that's where God is. If we want to know what God says, we listen to what Jesus says, that's what God says. If we want to know what God is doing, we look at what Jesus is doing, that's what God is doing then. And so we've looked at that and then the second biblical truth Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He never changes. So we put that, those two truths together, and we've gone back 2,000 years to the Gospel of John and looked at what Jesus did in the Gospel of John and said what he did then, he'll be doing today as well. So we've spent three months going through that. We're now we're to John chapter 20, which just happens to be Easter morning in John 20. And so um, that means that, that two days prior to this, what we begin to read, two days prior, Jesus was nailed to a cross. And, and he died on that day for every one of my sins. Literally, he did. And for every one of your sins as well, whether you would know it or not, he did. And for every human being that would ever live, he died for every single sin. He, he bore the brunt of it. He paid the penalty for it. He died. He was taken off the cross. He was put dead into a grave, buried in a grave on Friday. Saturday unfolds. It's Sabbath. It's quiet all across the city of Jerusalem. Sunday morning unfolds, and that's where John 20 picks up. And in fact, it's, it's, it's dark still. The sunrise hasn't even come up. It tells us in John 20. And it begins to tell us about this lady named Mary Magdalene. And I want to give you a glimpse of, of who she is because it might be helpful to us. Her first name is Mary. Her last name actually comes from the town she lived in. I have a map to show you where she came from. Her town was Magdala. And you might be familiar with, if you look at a Middle East, the town of Capernaum up to the north is where Jesus centered a lot of his ministry out of. And Magdala is about five miles from Capernaum. It's on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So she, she was living, she grew up and lived about five miles from the center of Jesus' ministry then. Easy to see how she would encounter him and get to know him. And then way down south, about 80 miles, is Jerusalem, which is where this is unfolding in John 20. And we know very little about Mary Magdalene, but we know this from Luke chapter 8, verse 2. It says that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Now, I don't know what you picture her being like before they were cast out, but let me give you a little glimpse. If, if she had one demon in her, it means that she was under the control of an evil spirit. She had no control of, of her life as it was. She would be under the control of an evil spirit, which would be wreckage, but it says she had seven demons. So she was under the control of seven demons. And to bring it home, we have some single guys in the room, okay? If, if you had a blind date and Mary Magdalene showed up, you would run to the hill. She was not dating material, not hardly. And you women in the room, you got a jillion cell phone numbers in your cell phone, but if she got your cell phone number, you would change it tomorrow. You, you don't want, you wanted nothing to do with her. It's hard to picture a life more wrecked and more ravaged than hers. And yet in a single sentence, it says that Jesus cast the demons out. And he remade her and gave her a brand new life and gave her a rich and full and beautiful life again. And so she began to follow Jesus along with the apostles and along with other women as well. She followed him for probably the better part of three years. And she was there on Friday before this Sunday. She was there. She saw him 
die on the cross. She saw him laid in a grave. And she shows up Sunday morning with some spices to finish the embalming process. She shows up early. And to her shock and horror, the stone is rolled away. She realizes that the body's gone. Someone has moved the body. It's this horrific step. It's bad enough already. But now there's this desecration of moving this dead body and so she runs to find Peter and John, the leaders of the disciples, and she tells them, and, and they run to the tomb as well. And they go into the tomb, and they see, indeed, the body's gone, and they leave. They leave her standing there, where I'll pick up in John 20, verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She was crying and weeping. It's hard to imagine how devastated her life was. She was convinced the one that had the power to free her from seven demons, the one who had the power to completely transform her life, she was convinced that he was the Messiah of God. She, he, she was convinced he was the one, he was the one that, would, that would turn the universe around. And to see him die on the cross and see it all ended was devastating to her. Many of you got to go through the Good Friday experience here on campus on Friday. It was, it's an experience of, of art and reflection and communion. There was this beautiful, powerful painting of Mary Magdalene that was in this setting. And she's standing there in this painting that we saw. She's standing there looking at the tomb. And, and the ground has been crumbling, moving toward her until right now there's, in the painting, there's this Grand Canyon chasm right to her feet. And her world is literally crumbling beneath her. That's what she experienced that morning. She's there weeping. She saw, okay, so she stoops and looks into the tomb. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head, the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. So Peter and John had just been there. They're the big dogs. They, they lead the disciples. Peter's the one that Jesus said, you'll lead the entire church. You'll lead the entire movement. These are the big dogs. They were just there, but God didn't see fit to send two angels to show them. You would think the big dogs, they would get the full nine yards, wouldn't you? But there were no angels for them. No angels for them. But she, she stoops in, the one who had been so wrecked and ravaged, and now restored, she steps in, and God the Father sends these two angels, and they're sitting there. They ask her this question, dear woman, why are you crying? The angels ask her, because, because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. So she turns, she sees someone there, and, and certainly there's some aspect when you read all of the Gospels that when Jesus rose from the dead, there was something that looked slightly different about him. But I suggest that she probably didn't recognize him for two other reasons. One, her eyes are filled with tears, and she's looking through blurry eyes. And who is the last person she expects to ever see walking again? It's Jesus. And she saw him dead. She saw him put in the grave. She's not expecting him. She doesn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you put him, and I'll go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. He calls out her name. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I call my sheep by name. I call out their name, and they recognize my voice, and they follow me. He calls out her name, Mary, and suddenly she knows it's Jesus. And she is the first human being 
that Jesus chooses to show himself to after the resurrection. Of all the ones he could have shown himself to, of all the ones, even his mother, even his mother, even the apostles, the leaders of the apostles, of all the others, he chooses this woman who had been so wrecked and so ravaged, and yet is the case with every human being, so loved by him. He chooses her. She's the very first one to see him. And scriptures would tell us that on that first Easter, there were five occasions that Jesus showed himself risen from the dead, alive again, with skin on, with skin on. He showed himself to Mary Magdalene first. He showed himself to Mary and two other women then. He showed himself to two men walking to the village of Emmaus. Showed himself to Peter by himself, and then Peter and some other apostles as well. Where was, where was God the first Easter? He was there. He was in their midst. He had skin on. He had nail-scarred hands. He ate fish with them. He spoke with them. Where was God 2,000 years ago the first Easter? He was there. He was there. So I, I pose our question, where is God today? Well, he's not here with skin on today. You know that, don't you? And we're not going to do some re- hokey reenactment that would try to reenact that. He's not here with skin on today. Now, I recognize he could show up, and if he, if he does, you have to peel me off of the stage up here. He could. He's not here with skin on. Where is he today? Five appearances the first Easter. Scriptures say over the next 40 days, five more appearances And then as the disciples watched, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Where is God today? The very next verse, verse 17, points us to the answer. So Mary recognizes Jesus, and as you or I might do, apparently she has embraced him in a bear hug. She's probably crushing him in a bear hug with joy and excitement. And this is his response. It's a very surprising one. He says, don't cling to me. Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Don't cling to me. Some translations say, don't hold on to me. It's a very strange thing. In fact, one's first thought might be, well, with him resurrected, maybe you shouldn't touch him. Maybe there's something about him, something about his body. Maybe you shouldn't touch him. But yet 10 verses later, that evening, he's saying to Thomas, one of the apostles, touch my hands where the nails are driven. Touch my side where the spear is driven. Touch me. It's not a matter of touching. This is what I think it is. Mary most certainly thought that now, now that Jesus was back, now they would return to how things were exactly how they'd been the last three years. He's back. Now he'll walk with us and We'll go village to village, and he'll teach us, and he'll do miracles, and he'll feed the multitudes, and it'll be just like it was. And, and that wasn't what Jesus had ever intended. Question here, he says, don't cling to me, don't hold on to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. He's saying, don't, don't get used to having me here with skin on. Don't get used to it. This is a temporary deal. She wouldn't know it, but the prior Thursday before Jesus' arrest, he would be teaching his disciples, and he would be saying one more time, he'd be saying, I'm about to be crucified. I've told you for a long time it's going to happen. It's going to happen now. And as I've told you for a long time, I will rise from the dead. I will come back to life again. And then he said, here's more information that is going to be really important to you. In John 16, 7, he begins to tell them that he's going to, after he comes back risen, then he's going to go away. In other words, ascend to heaven. He says, it's best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate or the Holy Spirit won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. He's saying, guys, I know you don't believe me yet, 
but there's something much, much better than me being here with skin on. And that's me sending the Holy Spirit. And then in the same conversation, John 14, 17, he says about the Holy Spirit, he says he lives with you now. In other words, he lives around you. He lives with you now and later will be in you. I'm going to actually send the Spirit of God to live in you. Now, I'm going to do something either really brave or something really stupid. I'm going to try to explain the Trinity in 45 seconds to you. And if you've tried to understand the Trinity, there are volumes that outnumber the people in this room about the Trinity. So this is probably now that I think about really stupid. But here goes 45 seconds, okay? Scripture is really clear. There is one God. There is only one God. But as we mere limited finite human beings can't begin to understand. He says there's one God, but there's three persons within this one God. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And Jesus is, of course, God the Son. And, and all of them completely God, and yet uh, three persons then. And he's saying to them, I'm, I will come, this is Thursday night, I will come back. You will see me risen from the dead, but I'm not staying. I'm going to go up to heaven and this is actually going to be better for you because I'll send the Spirit to live in you. What he was saying was, for three years, I've been with you. You could see me and touch me, but you could only see me and touch me if you were in the same place I was at. If we were in the same room, you could see me and touch me. I could speak to you. You could hear me. But if I was in another room, another house, another village, another part of the area, we, we had no contact. He's saying that's about to change in the most stunning way. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, who is the fullness of God, the Holy Spirit who has all of the power of God, all the wisdom of God, all the knowledge of God, all the love of God, all the grace of God, all the holiness of God. I'm going to send him, and he's going to live inside you. He's saying, not, not I'm going to take away your personality or take away your brain or take away your body. He's saying the relationship will be so intimate and un, unbreakable the best way to describe it is that the Holy Spirit will live in you. He will take up residence within you. And so he's crucified Friday. He rises from the dead on the first Easter, appears five times that day. The next 40 days he appears five more times, and then he ascends into heaven, and the apostles watch him physically go up into heaven. They watch him. There's one more physical appearance of Jesus sometime later, he shows up to the to man named Saul, who becomes Paul, and, and physically appears to Saul. So 40 days he ascends. Ten days later, you read the book of Acts, and Jesus follows up on his promise. He sends the Holy Spirit into them, and they would never be the same again. And the human race would never be the same either because the Holy Spirit has then come. The Holy Spirit will be referred to in the Bible as the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ. And this is very, very important to understand. Jesus never said, I will, I will send the Spirit to live within everybody. He said, I'll send the Spirit to live within everyone who does this, everyone who trusts me to forgive their sins and trusts me to lead their life. In other words, everyone who places their trust in me. Everyone who says, I, I need forgiveness from sins as everyone else does, please forgive me and please lead my life. He says, in that person, in that instant, the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes in that instant, in that instant of saying, forgive me and lead me. He says, there's complete forgiveness. 
There's a relationship that begins with God. There's something that changes within you. You become a new person. Your eternal address changes, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. The full power of God begins to live within you. The full knowledge and wisdom and love and grace of God begins to live within you. So I would pose our question one more time with that being the truth. Where is God today? God is here today. He is in this room today, and he is residing in the lives of every person in this room who has trusted Jesus to forgive and lead them. He is present, present, residing in the lives of those people. Christianity is not, is not a set of rules about how to do life. It's not, it's not about a pathway of life. It's about the most intimate, most vibrant, most powerful relationship with God imaginable. It is the Holy Spirit living within you, living within you. Jesus would call this, in Acts 1, verse 4, he would call it the gift. He would call it the gift. In John 7, he would call it rivers of living water. He would say, when I send the Holy Spirit to live within you, you're going to experience something like rivers of living water flowing out of your heart. Not out of your, just your intellect, but out of the, the core of your being, you'll experience this. Rivers of living water. It dawned on me. There might be someone in this room who has been born and raised in the Bay Area and never driven outside the boundaries of the Bay Area. And if that's you, you have no idea what uh, rivers of living water looks like because all you've seen is bayous. That's all you've seen. And they're filled with silt and mud and dirt. And I, I've looked at a couple and I thought, I think I might be able to walk on water on a couple others. They're so thick. That's all you've seen. It's all you've seen. I, for the life of me, I don't know why Houston has adopted the motto, the tagline that that they're the Bayou City. That's an ugly picture. That's not a compelling picture. Why would someone come see that? But we were with some friends this past week. They had gone to Garner State Park for the first time, and they saw the Frio River. Those of you that have seen the Frio River, it is this perfect, perfectly clear water. It is cool and crisp and pure, and it is running down the river. And in fact, when you, when you jump in, it takes your breath away but it's a good take your breath away. That's what Jesus was talking about. You, if you've been to the Frio River, you know what that looks like. You're saying when the Holy Spirit comes in, that's what your heart will feel like. If you've not been to the Frio, maybe the Guadalupe, some sections of the Guadalupe River up near the source there. So that's what your heart will feel like. That's what life will be like because I've, I have sent the Spirit to live within you. And, and he will never leave you. He will never leave you. We could spend so much time on what this looks like and means and trying to understand it. And in fact, in two weeks, we'll start seven weeks of teaching and learning, understanding about the Holy Spirit that will be very practical and, and could be life-altering for, for many. Two weeks from now, we'll begin that. But I want to give you just a snapshot of what rivers of living water can look like. One of the things that the Spirit does is He guides us in life. In John sixteen thirteen, it says, The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. Other places talk about the Spirit guiding us. And sometimes he guides us in the small things. I was sitting in my office. I had a lunch appointment with another staff person. If you know me very well, you know I, I really value and try to honor other people's time. If you have an appointment with me, I will do everything I can to be there on time. Because my thought process is, if you have stopped your busy day, and I assume your day is busy and meaningful, if you stopped it to be with me by a certain time, 
I'll do everything I can to be there by that time. So, so this appointment for lunch with the staff person, it, it has now arrived, and I'm just about to stand up, and I, I felt, it, it was this thought in my head that wasn't my own that said, wait, just wait. And by this point in time, I've been following Jesus for a long time, and I've come to recognize his voice better and better. Some of you in this room have been following for a long time, and, and you know what I'm talking about. Some of you maybe don't know that yet, but you could know that. It, it's, when he speaks, it just, it just feels like it's coming from a whole different place. And so I got up, and I went to the other staff person and said, hey, would you give me 10 minutes? I'm so sorry. Forgive me, but I need 10 minutes. I came back and sat down at my desk and felt like an idiot. So I'm, I'm just sitting there, twiddling my thumbs, nothing to do. And three or four minutes pass, I'm, and I am feeling like an idiot. Don't agree with me, okay? Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> and, and there's this knock on my door, and this man leans his head in and says, I'm in the middle of a crisis right now. Do you have five minutes? Of course, when is it five minutes? When is it ever really just five minutes? So he comes in, and indeed, there was a crisis right then. He was driving to address the crisis, and, and it, was, it was a fork-in-the-road moment it was going to happen for better or worse then. And so he told me what it was. We talked, and within five minutes, he's gone to face the crisis with what he needed to have face the crisis. And I look at my watch. It's been 10 minutes. And I, I realize if the Holy Spirit had not spoken, I would not have been there for that man. I would have been gone. I'd been gone to lunch. Wouldn't have been back for an hour, and the crisis would have occurred, and but, but it was the Holy Spirit in a small way just whispering, saying, you don't know this, you don't understand this, just wait. Sometimes the whispers are for big things. The guidance is for big things. A number of years back, I got a phone call. It was August, it was a late afternoon in August from Steve Shelby. A number of you know Steve. He's been in key leadership here for many years now, but Steve called me and, and he said, I'm at this leadership conference in Chicago and, and during this session that I was at, I think God told me to leave my career and come work for the church. And to give you some background on Steve, at that point, he'd been working in the same field for the same company for 25 years. And Steve loved his job, extremely good at it, very, very good. It's a very, very profitable job. And he was the kind of guy, while he did life really well with great balance, he's the kind of guy you could never picture retirement because he loved it so much. And so we were on the phone together and he's saying, like a boulder, this thought that I think is from God said, I want you to quit your job and go to work for the church. Now, the voice that he heard didn't say quit today, and I give Steve much credit for pursuing it with much wisdom. He took about two months to be sure that was the Holy Spirit, so he wasn't doing something really, really stupid. And over two months, God confirmed it again and again and again. And, and he left this job he would have never come to this conclusion if it weren't for the Spirit of God living in him and speaking to him and saying, leave this job. He left this job. He's been here for almost 12 and a half years now. And because he's been here, he has touched not hundreds, but thousands of lives, many of them personally and many uh, indirectly. He's touched thousands of lives. And it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened if the Holy Spirit hadn't spoken and guided and Steve listened and responded and heard. After so many services that we have here on Sunday, Mark and I will be up here closing up a service. And when the service, last service is done, we'll look at each other and smile and laugh. I always, 
I almost always have a subject matter weeks in advance. I give it to Mark and the whole team, and Mark will spend a long time praying about what songs fit the subject matter, and, and all that's well and good, but, but the, the last two or three days of preparation, I get real specific, and sometimes there'll be a word or a phrase or a direction that is so precise, and it's the whole point of the message, and I didn't know that to tell Mark, and he's already picked the songs, they've done rehearsal, it's all done, and I don't dare call him, it'd be a waste of time, and, and so I just go with the message, and then, then the worship songs unfold, I know where the message is going to go, and the worship songs have the very words in them that God has given me to use. And after a service, Mark and I shake our heads and say, only the Spirit of God. The Spirit was leading you and leading me. Only the Spirit of God could do such as that. Only the Spirit of God again and again. Two weeks ago, I had taught. I hung around talking to a lot of people. I went down the hallway, and a children's ministry staff person stopped me children's ministry, they almost always do their own independent teaching direction apart from, from this crowd. Every now and then we'll link them up, but usually independent. This was independent two weeks ago, and the person stopped me and said, we were all shaking our heads because what we had the kids do and focus on was exactly what you had the teenagers and adults doing. They're exactly the same thing. And then she said, it happens again and again and again. The Spirit of God speaking and guiding. I'll tell you one more this has happened, it's got to be hundreds of times now where, um, and many of you in this room have done this. You've come up to me and you've said, I've been coming to FCC for six months or 12 months, however, and, and invariably you'll say, I will never forget the first time I was there because it seemed like you were talking directly to me. And I thought, how does he know? How does he know my life, my circumstances? How does he know this, this very day of my life? How does he know? And, and then they'll continue telling me because they've been coming for several months, and this, so they'll tell me that, and then they'll say, but then I've been coming for several months, and I know you're just a dumb Aggie. You had no idea. It wasn't you. It was God. Like, God knew. God showed up. God gave you the words. God prepared my heart. God was at work here, and that's the truth. That's the truth. It's the Spirit of God speaking and guiding, and, and all the knowledge of God, all the wisdom of God, all the power of God lives within a Christ follower, all of that power in the Holy Spirit i give you one more thing. There's so many more aspects will unfold, unfold over the seven weeks that come. But in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, this passage still grips my heart every time I read it. It says, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the way a life gets shaped when the Holy Spirit lives within someone, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And, and I find myself, I read that, and I think, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't long for that? Love, joy, peace. My wife, Marie, and I became followers of Jesus within a week of each other, 31-plus years ago. At that point, we'd been married for seven-plus years. We dated a couple of years prior to that. I knew, knew Marie really, really well. Six months into following Jesus one night, I sat down with her, and I said, the last six months, there's been a peace within you I have never seen, and it has to be the peace of God in you, but, but you're not the same person. You're not the same person. Jesus says, anyone who will actually trust me to forgive them and lead them 
then in the instant they begin that life of trust, then I will send my Holy Spirit to live in them as well. The fullness of God, all of God to live within them, to guide them and transform them, and so many more things we'll talk about as the weeks unfold. And I know in this room, I know there there are many in this room who haven't yet begun a life of trusting Jesus, and I know in this room that the Spirit has been prompting and speaking into your heart and mind and saying, this is all true. The Jesus, that, the Jesus that died is risen from the dead. This is all true. He, he has sent his spirit. His spirit is alive in many in this room. This is all true. The spirit could be sent into your life and could transform your life if you were to begin a life of trusting Jesus as well. He's, he's whispering to you. He's saying, what, what better life could you ever find? What better life of growing love and joy and peace and patience and all could you ever find? This is the God of the universe saying, I died for you. I rose for you. I am wooing you now. Will you say yes? In just a moment when I pray, it is the beating of my heart, which doesn't begin to touch the beating of God's heart, that you will whisper this silent prayer and say, Jesus, I need forgiveness too. Like everyone else, would you forgive me? I'll trust you to forgive me. And I'll trust you to lead me. And that means surrender. That means I surrender you. You speak and I move. And if you do, in that moment, forgiveness, relationship with God, something in you will fundamentally begin to change. New eternal eternal address the Spirit of God will begin to live within you. Will you all bow with me? And if you already are trusting Jesus, would you pray with me for those who aren't yet? Lord, thank you for making the way. Thank you for dying a death that I cannot even imagine. Thank you for rising from the dead to being alive today. Thank you for sending your Spirit into everyone who trust their life to you. Father, there there are a large number in this room who you died for and have risen for and who your spirit is wooing today that have not yet trusted. And my prayer, Father, is that in this very moment they would whisper a silent prayer, something like this. It says, Jesus, I too need forgiveness for my sins. Like everybody else, I need forgiveness I will trust in my asking that you'll forgive me. And I also will trust you to lead me. I will surrender leadership to you. And Father, may they know in that prayer, may they know that all of that has now begun. All of that has now begun. Father, uh, thank you for loving us enough to go to such great lengths to give us new life and to give us a life that can that can grow beyond what we ever, ever have imagined and dreamed. Father, now we're going to spend a little window of time reflecting and worshiping to put a capstone on this time with you on Easter. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to put a capstone on this with with two things. There's a song that we're about to sing, and it's going to be new to most of you, but powerful, powerful lyrics. And while the song begins to unfold... 
We're going to have the ushers take the offering. And we say this every week. Many of you are guests, and if you're a guest, feel no obligation to put money in the basket. But for those of us that call this place home, it's an act of joyful worship for us. So when the, the song begins, the offering baskets will be passed. And focus on the song and the words of the song. And I would just urge you, you may have the, the urge to stand up. Wait till the basket at least gets past you. It's just a little easier to do then. But then feel free to stand and join in at some point. And, and then following that song, there'll be one final song of, of uh, exorbitant worship of God on this Easter Sunday. So uh, join us in this. Let me invite the ushers to come down.